Hello there, faithful listener. You've tuned in to season seven of the Bible Explained podcast. So make sure to grab your cup of coffee because today we are going to be discussing the book of First Samuel. Good morning, friends and faithful listeners. You've tuned into the Bible Explained podcast. And since today is Wednesday, we're going to be talking about First Samuel and discussing more about King Saul. And today's episode, I think, is going to be really interesting because it's going to start talking about some things that King Saul does that Samuel actually warned about a couple chapters before this. So we'll get into that today. But before we start reading, make sure to grab your cup of coffee this morning or your cup of tea. I haven't been drinking tea like at all, really. You guys know I don't really like tea anyway, but every once in a while I'll drink it at night, you know, just to like calm down. But I haven't been drinking tea like at all. In fact, I've noticed that my coffee drinking is getting later and later and later. Like, for example, I drank coffee last night until about 7 p.m. And then I also had trouble sleeping. I wonder why. <laughs> I, I, I have no clue why I would have trouble sleeping last night. It couldn't possibly be related to the coffee. All right. So grab your cup of coffee this morning and let's read 1 Samuel 11, 11 through 8. I will be reading this out of the W.E.B. version as usual. Then Nahash the Ammonite came and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make it with you, that all your right eyes be gouged out. I will make this dishonor all of Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days, and we will send messengers to all the borders of Israel. And then, if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, and spoke these words in the ears of the people. Then all the people lifted up their voice and wept. Behold, Saul came following the oxen out of the field. And Saul said, What ails the people that they weep? They told him the words of the men of Jabesh. God's spirit came mightily on Saul when he heard these words, and his anger burned hot. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces, then sent them throughout all the borders of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever doesn't come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. The dread of Yahweh fell on the people, and they came out as one man. He counted them in Bezek, and the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. So Saul is kind of in this weird limbo period where he's not exactly the king, but he's not exactly not the king <laughs> because in the last chapter, we talked about how Saul had technically just been introduced as the king of Israel. He was already anointed as king and anointing meant to be set apart, right? It was a beautification ritual that people would do to make themselves beautiful. And so when somebody was anointed, it was almost like they were considered to be special, if that makes sense. So Samuel had anointed Saul already. And Saul was set apart as the king, and then he was introduced to the people as the king, but he never was exactly crowned king. So he's in this stage of like waiting or something. And plus Israel never had a king yet. So there was also that. I don't know if Israel knew how to have a king <laughs> because 
<laughs> they never had one before. And so Saul, after he was introduced as king, he just goes back home and becomes a farmer again. That's what he does. And now he's just like waiting around, not exactly sure what to do as the quote unquote king of Israel. But now Saul has a chance to prove himself as king. It says in verse one that this guy, Nahash the Ammonites, came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. Now, according to the Dead Sea Scrolls, actually, this Nahash guy had already attacked some of Israel because we know that there were two and a half tribes that lived outside of the promised land. And so now Nahash is coming up against Jabesh Gilead, which would have been inside of the promised land from my understanding. And so Nahash had already gotten a pretty nasty reputation as a formidable foe to Israel. So the Israelites are absolutely terrified to see Nahash, Nahash's army outside of their city, like encamping against them, ready to take the city. So immediately they cave. Okay, they go to Nahash. And here's what it says in verse one. All the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. And notice that it says all the men of Jabesh. Every single man in that city was willing to surrender to Nahash. Now, don't forget that Nahash had not yet come into the city. He was just showing his presence showing Jabesh Gilead that he was nearby and he was about to take their city. The people, instead of praying to God, instead of trying to fight, instead of doing anything, immediately cave. They're like, we will serve you. Just don't kill us, basically. So Nahash, the Ammonite, is like perfectly fine with this. He's like, perfect. You know, I will make a covenant with you. I will make a promise with you, a treaty with you on one condition if all of your men of this city will gouge out their right eye, I will not kill you. So why did Nahash want them to gouge their right eye out? Well, multiple reasons. First and foremost, these men would not be able to fight as well with only one eye, right? Second reason, it's embarrassing. It's shameful that Israel would have to stoop that low, not even just to be servants, to Nahash, but to be servants that only have one eye to show how much greater Nahash is over Israel, if that makes sense. So it was like the ultimate embarrassment, ultimate shame for each man to have his eye gouged out and still have to serve Nahash and all of the Ammonites. So the people of Jabesh Gilead are absolutely terrified when they hear this. So they say to Nahash, give us seven days and let us send messengers throughout all of Israel so that we can tell them about this. And if we can find somebody to fight against you, we will fight against you. Otherwise, in seven days, we will come out. You can gouge out our eyes and we will serve you. So Nahash is like, OK, cool, do it. He lets Israel do this because he's arrogant. He had already won multiple battles, most likely. He was undefeated up until this point in time. He thought of Israel as very weak, uh, a country that had no king. He thought of Israel as just being pushovers because already they were 
they were already being pushovers by being like, yeah, we'll serve you. You can gouge our eyes out. Let us try to find a fighter. But otherwise, we promise we will serve you. So Nahash had a very low opinion of the Israelites. So he's like, yeah, you know, you can go try to find somebody to fight against me. I accept your challenge. And so that is what Israel does. They spread the news throughout the entire region by messengers. And when they get to Saul's city, which was Gibeah, they're telling all the people everything that Nahash had just done to the people of Jabesh. So the townspeople are all crying and weeping and wailing, not praying, but crying, weeping and wailing. So Saul comes in from the field because don't forget, he's kind of like back to being a farmer who's partially a king. And he sees all the people of Gibeah crying, wailing and weeping. And he's like, what is going on here? So one of the messengers tells Saul, hey, you know, Nahash, the notorious Ammonite, has come up against Jabesh Gilead. And we don't know what to do. And and they're going to have to be servants and they're going to have their eyes plucked out. And it's a scary situation. So Saul, when he hears the words of the messenger, the Holy Spirit, it says, comes mightily on Saul. And that is in verse six. It says, when Saul came following the oxen out of the field and Saul said, what ails the people that they weep? They told him the words of the men of Jabesh and God's spirit came mightily on Saul when he heard those words and his anger burned hot. So the Holy Spirit gave Saul this incredible anger. And you might be like, well, Jen, doesn't it say in scripture that anger is a sin? Well, actually, no, it doesn't. Anger is not a sin because we've seen Jesus himself express anger. Remember the time when Jesus went into the temple and knocked over all of the the traitors tables because they were sinning by being in the temple. That was Jesus showing anger. And Jesus showed anger multiple times also to the Pharisees as well and to people who refused to believe in Jesus, not even the Pharisees, but to multiple people, Jesus expressed anger. And there's also a verse in scripture that says, be angry, but do not sin. But unchecked, anger can lead to many things. It can lead to many problems. So anger in and of itself is not a sin. It's just an emotion. But if you allow it to control you, and if you allow it to go unchecked, and if you constantly act on your anger, then yes, anger does, in fact, turn into a sin. In fact, I believe it was Paul that said anger gives a foothold to the devil. So anger in and of itself is not a sin, but it can give a foothold. In other words, a place for Satan to easily step into your life, right? To tempt you and to cause you to sin in other ways that first started with the emotion of anger. And to prove this point a little bit more, if you check out James 1 verse 20, it says human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires, meaning any kind of anger that is selfish, any kind of anger that comes from the human nature. But Saul in 1 Samuel 11 wasn't experiencing human anger here. He was experiencing an anger that actually came from the Holy Spirit. A lot of people like to say that it's righteous anger. That's just Christianese 
for anger that is not a sin. So anger that is not a sin, if we're looking at it practically in our own lives, looks like being angry or upset over the way someone was mistreated or looking at the state of the world and being angry that, you know, babies are dying or that children are starving or orphaned. That kind of anger is not a sinful anger. But when it crosses over into sin is when you are angry because your spouse mistreated you. And so to express that anger, you go and do something malicious that would hurt him or her. You guys remember when the whole Amber Heard and Johnny Depp thing happened? I didn't really pay that much of attention to it, but I did read one story that I thought was absolutely insane where Amber Heard, when Johnny Depp and her got into a fight, I guess she defecated on his side of the bed or something. That kind of anger is certainly not right, if that, <laughs> if that makes sense. So we do have to analyze in ourselves when we feel anger. Is it an anger that's going to lead us to sin? Or is it an anger that is righteous and we can be feeling it, but we have to be still very careful how we respond to that anger? Because even righteous anger, even if it's initially a good anger, we can still sin with that kind of anger. If I may pose another example, the machine gun preacher, I don't know if you guys have heard about him. There was a movie made about him. He was a guy who became a Christian and really had a heart for children who were being sex trafficked in Africa. And so he went over to Africa. He was helping. He had this like anger about this cause and he was really doing a lot of good. But over time, that anger, even though it started out as a good thing, started eating away at him. He started becoming more and more volatile. He kind of rejected his family at home to continue to help these kids in Africa. And even when he was home with his family, he didn't want to be there. He was very cold to his daughter and to his wife. And it ended up having a big strain on their marriage. So even anger that starts out in a good way, we can still sin over time because anger, once again, gives a foothold to the devil. Even though anger in and of itself is not a sin, it can lead to sin if we do not check it. So going back to 1 Samuel 11, Saul ends up getting this righteous anger over what had happened to his fellow countrymen down in Jabesh Gilead. It says his anger burned hot. So right after this, he takes a yoke of oxen and he cuts them into pieces. And he sends them throughout all the borders of Israel by the hand of the messengers saying, whoever doesn't come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. So what happened? <laughs> Personally, you know, I'm not going to say if Saul sinned or not here, because it does seem like he took his own oxen and did this and you know, kind of just a weird way to get Israel to respond to the call to arms. You know, it's just a very strange thing. I do not know if Saul sinned or not. But what I do know is if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and you look at what Samuel, the high priest, warns about the king 
Here's what he warns. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. Samuel said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. And that's only part of the warning that Samuel gives to Israel. But this is exactly the first thing that Saul did. He forced the Israelites to come out with him by giving them this kind of weird Godfather-esque warning. You know, he, he cuts up the oxen, sends them all over to Israel. And he says to the Israelites, if you don't come out to war with me, I will go and I will do this to all of your oxen as well. And so the Israelites become afraid. They're, they're terrified. And they're like, okay, we're going to go to war is what it says. And it says the dread of Yahweh fell on the people and they came out as one man. So, I mean, the, the warning worked that Saul gave to the people, but it's funny that that's the first thing that happens with Saul being the king. The first thing that happens is exactly what Samuel warned about. The king would force people to go to war, force them. Now, this didn't happen in the same way with the judges. Like if you notice in the book of Judges, a lot of times the judges would be like, whoever wants to come out to war, come to war. And even uh, Gideon, one of the famous judges of Israel, he sent people home. (laughs) He was like, if you're scared to be here, go home. Don't fight this battle if you're scared to be here. And then Samson, one of the most famous judges of all of Israel, he just went out and did it himself. (laughs) He never asked anybody to come with him. Samson was like a one-man army. So it wasn't the same with the judges. Now, I think there probably was some amount of embarrassment, you know, with the judges if you didn't go out to war and help your fellow Israelites, but it just wasn't the same. They weren't being forced to come out to war, at least not very often. There was a couple occasions where that did happen, where God told the people to go out to war. Um, For example, the two and a half tribes that lived beyond the Jordan River, when the Israelites first crossed into the promised land, like for the very first time, the two and a half tribes actually went with the Israelites to help them battle before they could go back home. And God actually commanded that of those Israelites. But uh, that that situation was a little bit different. But Saul is forcing the people to go out to war. The very first thing he does as king. And not only is he forcing the people, he's forcing Samuel as well. Notice, <laughs> notice Samuel isn't even part of all this. And Saul is like, whoever doesn't come out after Saul and Samuel. <laughs> so Saul's just expecting Samuel to go to battle with him. It's just kind of funny. So the people all come out, they're all united, they have their king finally, and uh, it says that when Saul made the count of the people of Israel, there were 300,000 Israelites, and then the men of Judah were 30,000. So it looks like there is about 330,000 Israelites willing to fight against Ammon. Now, to give a little bit of perspective on this, if you go all the way back to Judges chapter four, when Deborah was the judge, it mentions how 
the Israelites were under the rule of the Canaanites at this time. And so Deborah called for Barak to go and fight against the Canaanites. And so here's what it says in verse 10 of Judges 4. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went with him. Okay, that's a big difference. Right now in 1 Samuel 11, 330,000 men are willing to go with Saul. As compared with Judges chapter 4, when Barak went up, all he could get was 10,000 men to go with him. And that was when God was the king. People didn't want to listen to God. They didn't want to listen to the judges. They were much more willing to listen to Saul than they were to listen to God. So this entire portion we read today, it shows a few things. It shows that first and foremost, the Israelites just didn't want God from the very beginning. Even the people of Jabesh Gilead, who are about to go up against this guy, Nahash, their first instinct wasn't to pray to God or to cry out to God or to confess sins or anything like that. Their first instinct was to immediately surrender and to give themselves up. And not only did they not want God, they wanted a human being to take care of them, a king, an earthly king to take care of them instead of God to take care of them. That's the first thing we learn about this passage. The second thing is we learn about anger. We learn about righteous anger or anger that is not sinful, does not lead to sin. And we also learn about anger that does lead to sin. Anger in and of itself, not a sin. It is a, an emotion. That's all it is. But if you act on it in a negative way, then it certainly does cause you to sin. So that's the two things we learn in today's portion. Friends and faithful listeners, I hope you have a fantastic rest of your hump day and that you uh, join me tomorrow for an episode out of Acts and then also join me on Friday because we'll talk about the rest of this portion of scripture because even though there's only a tiny bit more going on in this chapter of 1 Samuel 11, there's still a lot more we can talk about about the people's response to Saul. So I hope to see you over the next two days as we finish out the week in scripture. But for today, I'm going to let you all go with a happy listening and God bless.